Hi, I'm Jennifer Eggers, and I'm listening to the Cut to the Chase podcast. Um, loving it for the authenticity and the ability to just deal with real issues in a really real way. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Gregory Proctor, and welcome to another episode of Cut to the Chase, episode 21 rewriting a new chapter. Today we have a special guest and I know people are like, oh my god, Greg, here you go again. You're going to say how great LinkedIn is and blah, blah, blah. But let's be realistic, people. I mean, it's a platform. It's a platform to meet people. It is a platform to engage with people. It is a platform to to strip away your boundaries and understand how other people think. You know, it brings about a lot of different cultural diversity you know, across the planet. I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And to be honest with you, this story that I'm about to share with everybody before I introduce our special guest simply was because she put a post out about a book that she just wrote. And I was fascinated by the book because obviously I'm a, res- a resiliency advisor. I'm a project controls uh, advisor. I'm a specialist. I mean, so everybody that knows what I do for a living is very familiar with why this book became kind of like important to me. Anything on resiliency, I'm kind of keened into. And so I reached out to her and basically said, hey, I'd like to order a copy of the book. And sure enough, you know, I ordered the book, paid for the book, and the book, you know, took a little bit longer to get to me than what we thought because of all the COVID stuff was was occurring. But it was the one sheer thing that stood out to me about our special guests that made me, before I even received the book, that that turned my mind and expressed my interest for me to basically understand more about this individual was the fact that she followed up with me and said, hey, did you receive the book? And when I responded and said, no, I haven't received the book, she says, okay, let me look into that. To me, that was a significant going above and beyond, which I'm all about going above and beyond, uh, for someone that she didn't even know. I mean, it was, and, and, and now here we are today, several months later, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast. And so I'm going to jump into uh, a little bit of our backstory about our, about our special guests. So as we look deep into our special guests, Miss Jennifer Eggers, she is a consultant. She's a coach. She's a best-selling author. She's a speaker. She's the founder and president of Lead Shift Insight Incorporated. All right. Helping leaders deal with the disruptive change and increasing their organization capacity to adapt so they can emerge stronger and more faster than ever. She is the creator of Rapid OD, a collaborative, fast approach to organizations restructuring, highly charged workshops, influence, resiliency, and driving sustainable change. She has over 20 years of experience in coaching, She's led entire leadership teams, as well as officers and directors of many Fortune 500 companies. She's been repositioned for personal branding, driving behavior and cultural changes. She increased, or excuse me, she's increasingly a senior leader with the ability to drive performance through others. Her book, Resiliency is Not About Bouncing Back, is a number one international bestseller. And I'm not done. I mean, this this lady is great. So let me just get through the rest of the accolades before I give her an opportunity to talk. 
So she's got a bachelor's degree in marketing. Reengineering manager strategy from Penn State. She's a former partner with Cambridge Leadership Group. She used to be the vice president and leader development for Bank of America. She's held several other leadership roles in learning organizations, leadership development at AutoZone and Coca-Cola Enterprises. She's designed and executed large-scale initiatives including mergers, enterprise restructuring, talent management, performance management, and team development. She's a strategic partner with the University of Georgia, executive education, an advanced practitioner in adaptivity leadership, and a member of an adaptive leadership network at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Folks, Jennifer is a passionate for creating alignment, resiliency, so your team can do more with what you already have. She's a masterful facilitator, known for creating and sharing agendas, which unravel tough issues that hinder results. And I think last but not least, Jennifer has become a very good colleague, a very a, a professional colleague, where the few conversations that we've had, we've been just kind of in the tranche of just really vibing and, and, and those type of things resonate with me very well. And, and, you know, I can truly say that she's a friend. And so Jennifer, you know, most people go, Greg, you didn't do a really good job of introducing me. So I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> do, do you have any opening remarks that you would like to share? Wow, with our audience? Gosh, um, I don't know if I can live up to all that, but thank you. It's great to be here. Um, certainly an honor to be included in your podcast. And I've really enjoyed our conversations getting to know you as well. So I would I would absolutely agree with the friend part. And uh, certainly I think we're going to be colleagues for a long time. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're delighted to have you. We're delighted to talk about rewriting a new chapter and, and to kind of dive into that a little bit. You know, Jennifer, Jennifer's book, as Jennifer and I were talking about uh, kind of creating a podcast, uh, chapter 10 was, it was one of those chapters that really stood out to me. And, 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 and when we were talking, Jennifer, and I were talking last week, I said, you know, chapter 10 kind of talks about core beliefs, knowing what you stand for and when you need to stand up. And that comes right off the cover page of chapter 10. And so one of the things we started talking about, which was kind of, it was, it was very coincidental. It was kind of funny almost. I said, Hey, when you wrote chapter 10, were you thinking about the future? Or were you thinking about the now? And, and it was rather, it was rather funny. You know, I think your remark was, you know, we had no notion. I mean, yeah, you guys were thinking about it, but you had no notion that the world would be where it is today uh, with the social uprising, the pandemic, the financial economic situations that we have. And so could you share with our audience a little bit about that, Jennifer? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, so the book for those maybe who haven't haven't read the book, I mean, the book is um, it's about building individual and organizational resilience. So the first half of the book, you know, part one is about how to build individual resilience. And we have a, a proven framework um, that we use and that we presented in the book. And the, the piece that you mentioned is the, the part about core beliefs, um, which is really sort of the bedrock of building resilience. Um, and then part two of the book, and there, so there's a few things that go on top of the bedrock that are presented in the book. We can talk about that later. But part two of the book is is taking what you learned about how to build resilience and really applying it to your organization or your team and building a resilient organization. 
And so then, you know, sort of after we after we talked about sort of applying the framework to those things, we wrote a chapter on the derailers of resilience. And so that was the chapter that, you know, in retrospect, when I think about what we chose to put in there, I mean, there are a million things that you could say about what are the things we do um, in organizations that derail resilience. Um, and the the few that we chose to talk about, uh, Me Too I, was, a, was a biggie um, in terms of, of one that we felt, you know, any kind of power struggle or any sort of um, anytime when people are marginalized or they they can't bring their best self to work and really use all their discretionary energy. Um, what we find is that when discretionary energy is used for something other than the, the real issue at hand or what you're trying to do as an organization, it takes away from um, what you have sort of left in the tank to use when you need to be resilient. And so we use some examples. And so the examples that we used were, um, I thought, pretty innovative at the time. Me Too was one of them. Certainly, um, we have a whole section on food issues that's probably never been talked about before in terms of, you know, people that have dietary issues often struggle to feel included and it's very distracting uh, at work. I think we thought when we wrote the chapter that probably enough had been said about, uh, you know, race and sexual orientation and those types of things. Sure. And, um, you know, what our recent history, I think, has proved us wrong. And we didn't say enough about certainly about race and certainly about some of the other reasons perhaps that people are marginalized. Now, it was never meant to be a laundry list. It was meant to say that anytime that we have a power struggle or people don't aren't able to really be fully included, then they, they can't um, really be resilient. And so those are derailers. But I think, you know, had I had I had a crystal ball and certainly known where um, where the world was going, I might have said a little bit more, perhaps been a bit more intentional um, about race and some of the other um, derailers as well. Yeah, yeah. And, though, and, 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 and the points are, like you said, you know, without without having a crystal ball and, and, and taking an approach on things that were kind of in the now as uh, as you guys were writing the book. Um, you know, provided, um, you know, kind of a, a, a storyline for what people knew that was going on today. And then, of course, as you very well know, things uh, things have evolved and, you know, we're facing. And I think when we talked about this before, you describe it as uh, kind of a pace on change. You know, let's 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 dive into kind of that. You know, we've got we've got COVID and we've got we've got society. And then, of course, all of the other things that are going on. So this whole pace on change as it relates back to kind of resiliency, can, can you help our listeners kind of relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think resilience, you know, we make an argument in the book that resilience is the number one skill that leaders need today. And, and I would argue that, you know, until maybe a month ago, no one was talking about it. And so I think that was our passion when we wrote the book was, you know, gosh, with the rapid pace of change in our world today and the, just the amount of stuff that people have to adapt to quickly, um, the pace of change really is driving a need for resilience. But I will say um, it's not just the pace, it's the mm -hmm. type of changes um, that people are, are having to deal with. And so... You know, so for example, there's really two types of challenges that, that people face. I mean, there are adaptive challenges that are very kind of big, hairy, monster, complex things that we've never seen before um, that we have to adapt to. And, it, and a great example of that is, you know, Airbnb coming in and disrupting um, the hotel industry or mm -hmm. Uber coming in. I mean, there's all these sort of industry disruptors that tend to get the press. But the other kind of challenge is the technical challenges. I mean, we still have the basic need to do things better, faster, and cheaper. So those technical challenges don't go away, 
but the way we deal with adaptive challenges has to be very different. And they require us to be more resilient because they're they're quite a bit more difficult and they require us to mobilize people, which is also, you know, that tends to be stressful. And some of these challenges just cause more stress, hence the need to be more resilient. Yeah, 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 ab- absolutely, absolutely, totally agree. And uh, as you've talked about, you know, with some of the examples, like you like you emphasized the, the Ubers and the Airbnb, you know, in this particular wake of what's going on with COVID, I mean, there, there are entrepreneurs out there going like gangbusters right now to come up with the next greatest widget. And and certainly I, I expect there's probably going to be a whole lot of new things that we haven't really thought about that are going to be on the market once this thing is is finally said and done. So uh, so with that, you know, I, I want to kind of dive into, you know, we, we talked, you know, last week about, you know, values and beliefs. And, and there was a lot of context that came out of that. And, and even with regards to to kind of how the chapter is really structured, you know, um, knowing when to stand up and, and, and knowing what you stand for and when to stand up. So, so with that, you know, I, and I'm going to kind of throw you a curveball, and it's really not a curveball because we've talked about it, but, but the thing is here is, you know, we had some trade-offs that you and I talked about. And, and as we, as we talk about some of the, the disoriented dilemmas, uh, do, values and beliefs, you know, do they kind of apply to, to everyone? I mean, you know, there's, there's some hidden things that I think you've experienced, which we kind of avoided in the opening segment, because we want to kind of talk about those a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But if you were to take people back through some of the earlier stages of your adolescent through college years, I believe we talked about the fact of you know, how you were raised and basically, you know, the, the type of class and society that you lived in and then what you discovered when you went through through college. Could, could you share yeah. with us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so I think the reason the reason to go there um, is not all about me. It's about the fact that our filters and beliefs and the, the way we're raised and our attitudes and our experiences shape um, very much shape who we really are and our, and who we are as a person shapes who we are as a leader. And so you, the quote I think you're you're remembering is it's difficult to stand up if you don't know what you're standing on. And that that is probably the biggest crux of, of resilience um, if I had to you know go back to like one of my favorite quotes in the book. And so the important thing is to really think back to, what are the filters and what are the experiences um, that you have? And so the hard part about that is this takes a really hard look back at yourself, right? So for me, um, you know, I grew up in an you know um, upper middle white suburb. Um, there were two African Americans in my high school. They um, I didn't have much to do with them, although you know when I did, they were all positive interactions. It wasn't any you know there wasn't any. Um, a lot of people that look different, and so I didn't. I didn't grow up with a positive or a negative negative view of other races or people who are different. But um, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just. I really didn't have any idea. I thought, and actually, I would say, probably at, early on, thought everyone was just like me because I hadn't seen anything else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, lo and behold, fast forward a few years, I, I went to college, and I, you know, I was at Penn State, and. 
I ended up uh, moving into a minority dorm floor my junior year. And so up until then, you know, everyone looked just like me. And I moved on to this floor where there was um, more diversity than you can possibly imagine. I had uh, the woman across the hall was going back to India for an arranged marriage. I had two African-Americans next to me. There were several LGBTQ folks on the floor. There was a woman who was first generation Greek. Um, And so all of a sudden... I was in this environment where no one was like me and no one had an experience similar to me and never having, you know, been through that before. It was uh, certainly a little disconcerting. But what was fascinating, I think, was our ability to come together, you know, usually in someone's room late at night and just figure out, you know, where were we different and what did we have in common? Mm-hmm. And I think, it, you know, it was a, it was hugely eye-opening. Um, I didn't I didn't understand prejudice really until that until that point. Um, and as I started learning sort of what other people went through, frankly, it was shocking. Um, so I saw the way friends were treated in the stores. I saw the way people followed them when they would walk into a store in rural Pennsylvania, you know, for no reason other than to be suspicious. Um, one of my friend's student taught in a district where she had to be bussed out before dark because it wasn't safe for her race to be in that town. Um, and so these, I mean, these were really deep shaping experiences for me. Um, and I thought that I came through that with a pretty open mindset towards differences and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of acceptance and a, and a, and a, you know, I kind of, I kind of felt like I had got this and that, you know, I had had this great experience and, and, I was going to kind of move forward in life and and not be close-minded and, and everything was going to be, um, you know, sort of changed for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and what was fascinating, so fast forward, you know, say another 10 years. So I started my career in New York and, uh, well, maybe fast forward two or three years, started my career in New York. And I, again, tons of diversity. New York's a diverse city. Um, I don't recall a tremendous amount of prejudice. I remember, I do remember, I felt like everyone wore a different hat. So the guy next to me might have a yarmulke or a turban or a backwards baseball cap or dreadlocks or whatever. But I felt like we all very much sort of focused on our, our commonalities and, you know, what we had in common. And we brought our different cultural food, you know, in on Culture Food Day. And, and um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, again, didn't see a lot of... Um, negativity there. So fast forward, you know, probably another, you know, five or six years. And I was building a team at Bank of America. And so I had some strong beliefs and what I thought were very strong values around differences. And so I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story about one of the best employees I ever had, who I frankly almost missed the opportunity um, to work with. And when I look back, I mean, this is another one of those sort of career defining moments where, you know, I look back and I I think I told you when we talked, I had never really shared this story and it it didn't make the book and it probably should have. Um, But so I was interviewing for a role. I was running a learning team and I had an opening for a learning business partner. So she was going to be sort of instruction. Well, he or she would be Mm an instruction designer, but also sort of the the partner that represented the learning function to um, one of our lines of business. And I interviewed three um, really good candidates. And so the first, you know, the first candidate was a male PhD who had deeply studied instruction design. He really knew the function. Um, You know, I connected with him personally in the the interview. I I felt 
like he would have been, you know, a stellar add to our team. Mm-hmm. The second was another woman who also had a lot of experience um, in the space. She looked a lot like me. She um, had very similar experiences to me. And, you know, again, also thought that we would probably get along and subsequently might even be friends. And then the third candidate was um, a woman I interviewed who she was older. First of all, she was a, she was an older woman. She came in and she said, um, I don't have, you know, I've never worked in a pure instruction design learning function. She's, she said, but I'm really, really passionate about this topic. And I, I really want to work in this space, but I haven't found a way to break in. And so what she had done is she went to the pastor of her church and she asked if she could apply. She took a bunch of classes. She went out and she really did a lot to try to develop herself and learn what she didn't know. And she asked her pastor if she could apply all of this to build a program for the church, which she did. Um, And she brought that in to show me what she had done. And I mean, it was stellar. It was stellar work product. Um, But the truth of it was, I couldn't really, I didn't really connect with her. She didn't look like me. She wasn't my age. She was much wiser than I was at the time. Um, We had a very young team. She didn't Mm -hmm. really fit with that. Um, and she she was a different race than I was. And so when I went home that night to figure out, you know, kind of thinking through, okay, you know, who did I interview? What am I going to do? I immediately took her off the list because I didn't connect with her the way I connected with the other candidates. And so what happened during that night was um, one of these sort of times when you kind of come face to face with yourself. And I had to say to myself, what was it that led me to outrule that candidate? And I looked back and I thought, well, there were a number of things, but the, but they all had to do with the fact that she was different than me. Mm-hmm. And because of her differences, we didn't connect the way that I expected to. Sure. And the, you know, thankfully, and I kind of have to swallow hard when I say this, cause I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but thankfully I had the foresight to say, the fact that you're uncomfortable means you need to go hire this candidate. <laughs> and so um, Sandy became the the first African-American on my team. And she taught me an incredible amount about what good leadership looks like. And by the sheer fact that we had so many differences, what happened was she made it her mission to figure out who was better at what on the team and she figured out how to leverage the people that were better that, than she was at certain things. And she got them to leverage each other. And so that actually started happening without me. And it right. never would have happened if I hadn't brought in someone that I didn't feel that strong you know, connection with that was different than I was. Um, so I tell that story, I mean, for a couple of reasons. So one is that our filters sometimes are so deep rooted that we don't even know they're there. So my upbringing in a white suburb had slanted me towards a certain type of hiring. 10 years later, after some very strong experiences that would have flown in the face of that filter. Mm-hmm. So filter awareness is huge in building resilience. Right. Um, the other reason I tell that story is because I think there are many of us that hire and choose whether it be employees or friends or neighbors or people to have dinner with that look like us, sound like us, you know, that we connect with that way. 
And I think if we can all kind of challenge ourselves to say, gosh, when you're uncomfortable, is the perfect time to go find someone who's different and say yes. Um, if I hadn't done that, I would have missed out on one of the most incredible, um, that team turned into one of the best teams I've ever managed because of that individual. And um, it's funny, I've, I've never told this story and, and if she ever listens to this, like she'll be shocked too. But um, but it really, it, it really is kind of a, a life-defining moment and I'd like to think that other people maybe can learn from that, particularly maybe other white people <laughs> that, um, you know, might take a chance on somebody that looks different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, your your story is uh, is one hundred percent relatable. Um, I, you know, I, I have something very similar, except you know, I'm I'm, I'm coming at it from a, from a different perspective. Um, you know, and and with with me, I was primarily you know in my profession of project controls when I started out working you know 20, 25, 26 some odd years ago in project controls. Uh, I was working for a gentleman, which if anybody's interested in finding out who that gentleman is, you go back and I think it's episode six, the evolution of project controls. Uh, the gentleman's name was Wayne Korth. Uh, Wayne was probably 40 some odd years my senior, but he said to me at the time, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you're willing to learn and you're willing to listen, I can teach you things that will carry you around the world. And let's let's be realistic. You know, Wayne was was old school. He was he was a white Caucasian. You know, very smart uh, individual. He became my number one ally. Became my number one adversary in everything that helped me grow my business. And he's even working for us today as as as, as a consultant. And so, for the many years that I've known Wayne, there's been nothing but millions of dollars that have flown you know, into, or should I say in and out of my bank account. And, you know, the one introduction that Wayne did for me at the time, and it wasn't based on the fact of, of me being, you know, a, a young African-American man that had been trained by him. And he knew that if he made this introduction, that, that it would, it would put him in the best possible light. It was based on the integrity, the credibility and the professionalism of what I brought to the table because for him it wasn't about color and so when he received a call from a very large fortune 500 company saying hey we'd like for you to come work on a project and this is at my very early stages of starting up my project controls company back in 2004 and 2005 Wayne said look I'm unavailable I'm working on another project but I know a guy and that guy is probably better than me and 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 the guy that was on the other phone said well wait a minute you have been working in this for a while, but this young kid that I'm going to refer you on to, I trained him and he was talking about me. And so I left, I left Virginia, flew to Denver, Colorado to work for a large Fortune 500 company on a multi-billion dollar uh, procurement effort. It was, it was kind of a BD job. And what I didn't even know, unbeknownst to me, is that that was going to set the stage for me to see the world, to basically uh, enjoy life like I would have never enjoyed life ever. And it all became, it all came down to the fact of value, principles, and like you said, looking at your filters. Because growing up in Mississippi, you know, there were certain filters that even being an African-American person, I had in life 
as it per, as my perception was viewed on those that may have wore hoods or those that may have come down the street with the Confederate flag or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, in, in hindsight, here it was, I'm working for a large conglomerate company. They've got young talent. I'm young talent. This one particular young talent VP was looking to make a mark in his growth through the corporate ladder string. And he said, look, we are so impressed with you and your team's work ethic. How would you guys like to go exclusive with this? And I was like, well, I really don't want to go exclusive with you guys, even though I know that meant it could have been, like I said, seven figures going into our bank account. What I wanted to do was continue to offer them the best quality service, but still work for other companies. Well, they kept us so busy for 12 years, Jennifer, 12 years, 12 years all over the world. And I tell you, some of the projects that we worked on and that that uh, we put forth our project controls, methods, skills, principles and philosophies are still being utilized today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just it's just, you know, it's incredible. And so, you know, I've left the government perspective, the government market. And, and have gone on to look at more smaller markets and look at more markets abroad. But the turning point, just like with you, the turning point was for me was that moment in time where I was being trained by someone that didn't see color, that even didn't really, you know, frankly didn't care, you know, and then I was introduced to someone else that really didn't see that either because it was just based on what value can you bring to the table. If you can bring value, then we can we can do we can do great things together. But you know, as as we've talked about a little bit, you know, where we're at today, things are just so hard for people to get past those filters, those biases, those beliefs, and sometimes even those core values. And you know, it, it just making the whole transformation of what we're seeing today extremely hard in 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 the life that we know here in 2020. Yeah, it's so. it, what a great, I mean, well, that's a great story, you know, and, and I think w- what's important is that once, so first we have to know what our filters and our values are. And I think that's where a lot of people today have not done that work. And that is edgy in your face, hold up the mirror, tough work. And I think we have to, we have to commit to that if we're going to think about being more resilient people. And we also have to think about it as our, as an, our organizations if we want to have resilient organizations. But I, but I feel like the first step is really taking a long, hard look and figuring out what are your core beliefs? What are your filters? What shaped you? And then the really cool part is that every situation is a chance to be who you really are. So if you don't like the filters that you have and you don't like the um, experiences that you have or you don't like the beliefs that you have or if they're not serving you, you can choose a different one. You can try it on and see if it, see how it works. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I would say in that moment, it was an incredibly uncomfortable place for me to be to say, well, I'm going to pass up on two good candidates that I know are, are going to be like a shoe, you know, fit like an old shoe um, in this position where my success is, is pretty high risk. Like that, that hire was pretty high risk for me um, to take that gamble you know, what was not easy and putting, putting myself out there wasn't, wasn't easy. But when I, when I said, wait a minute, that's not the filter that I want to apply right now. That's the kind of decision-making that I think we have to make. It's the same decision, um, Gregory, that you made when you took that role 
That's right. You know, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It's like we have to make ourselves a little uncomfortable. And in the book, we talk about that as the disorienting dilemma. So if we want people to change in any way, people don't change because it's a good idea. You know, the, the research tells us, there are all kinds of research that tells us that. I mean, mm-hmm. someone might be very convinced that a change is the right thing, but unless they have a, an, an incident that disorients them where they go, I can't go back to being the way I was before, mm-hmm. they're really not likely to change. Right. And Martin Luther King was great at this in the civil rights uh, movement, you know, and unfortunately, maybe it didn't stick, but unfortunately, um, but what he did a really good job of was saying, hey, we've got a country that's based on a set of core values, but those values don't apply to everybody. So we have to, we, he, he sort of started pointing that out and it became this d- disorienting dilemma where people said, wait, we can't, we can't stay the same and continue to espouse this set of values because we're not acting in accordance with our values. And I, I think we're there again. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's rather sad, you know, from, from a standpoint of, you know, with the way technology is today, with the way that education is, and the way that, you know, us as a country, as a nation, has the capability to flourish, that we're still dealing with a 400-year-old problem that hasn't been resolved. And that's just, that's just insanity, you know, when we look at what's going on right now. And, you know, as you talked about, you know, the, uh, the disoriented dilemmas, you know, I, I, I go back to just another quick short story that I'll share with our listeners is the fact that, you know, my company took on a project in Idaho Falls. And a lot of people go, Idaho Falls. Some people may go, well, yeah, we know where that is. And then other people may go, where the hell is that? Okay, you know, Idaho Falls is not far from Yellowstone National Park. And so, you know, I was brought up there to work for, you know, my company and, and my and myself to work for a small manufacturing company that had just been awarded, uh, you know, an $80, $100 million plus job. And we had back-to-back jobs that we were doing for them. Well, here it is. I'm in the middle of Mormon country. You know, I mean, and, and, and I mean, you know, it's it's kind of comical when you look at it. You know, I, I fit into the one percentile. It's bad enough being on the street somewhere where you're being stereotyped. But when you fit into the one percentile of the population, you know that wherever you go, either A, they look at you as a celebrity or or B, they look at you as like, hey, what what is this guy doing here? And so the fallacy of this, right? Is the, is, the, is the fact that I embrace that. I utilize that as basically any other smart human being would utilize. Okay, you're going to bring forth all this attention to me when I go out, you know, and I have dinner and I do this and I do that. Well, guess what? I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to treat you with humbling respect. I'm going to be very kind. I'm going to be, you know, trustworthy, loyal. I mean, people are going to want to, they're going to want to say, well, look, hey, this guy is not what we think he is. This guy's, he's, he's obviously much better person than what we have in our perception. And lo and behold, Jennifer, that transformation happened over an 18 month period where when I would walk into Staples because we were buying so much equipment and, and printer paper and ink and this, that, and the other, they would love to see me come in there because it was like, hey, here comes Mr. Proctor. You know, they went from who is this guy to to now calling me Mr. Proctor because they knew I was going to spend like $2,000 on supplies to help support our project. And it was like, well, hey, 
I want that sale on on my books, you know. And and it was just one of those things where, you know, as as my parents brought me up, you know, we didn't really focus on those type of things. We just focused on the qualities of life and making sure that, like I said, treating people with respect. It doesn't really matter what you look like. It's just a matter of understanding that you have to treat them with respect. And we had so much discipline instilled in us, my brother and I growing up, that, you know, as kids, we always knew the representation of having the Proctor's last name. You had morals and and, and admirations and expectations that you had to live up to. And there was no ifs, ands, or buts about that because back then when I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s, as everybody knows that's listening to this, how hard things were back then wasn't quite as bad as they were in the 50s and the 40s. But your your neighbors, you know, in the neighborhood, if, if, if you were a kid and you got out of line, not only did you get your butt spanked based on the neighbor saying, hey, you, you were being disruptive to what's going on here. We didn't like that. But sure enough, if they call your parents, you got another, you know, butt spanking. And so, you know, when we talk about resiliency, you know, you had to basically figure out at a very young age of right and wrong and how to cope and deal with all of the different adversities of society that's being thrown at you and all the different biases that were coming at you. And and you had to understand those things very quickly, you know, and I think that's one of the things that the black community, even though they talk about like oppression and things like that, I think as a community, we've been very resilient. We've been very, very much able to kind of persevere you know, over the long haul, because who in their right mind would want to continue to deal with the same thing over and over and over for 400 years. Right. And, 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 you know, like I said before, in one of the other podcasts, I mean, the streets are talking right now and the streets are talking in such a way that, like you said, as a, as a, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, as a business, as a corporation, by God, we have to take this into an account. Now we have to think differently. We have to remove those filters and remove those boundaries in order for us to have some type of unity and and harmony as we go forward, you know, in in the out years. Yeah, and I think there's a business reason for this too. I mean, you know, and I hate to I hate to draw everything back to to business, but just in case people aren't convinced by everything that's going on today. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I I think I look at resilience as there's no margin left in business anymore. You know, there's not extra people lying around or extra resources lying around. Um there's just barely as many resources as you need, if not just a little less, um, and just and just barely enough time to get done what we need to get done. And so when a crisis happens and we need to be resilient, it, it really is directly proportional to how much extra energy we have in the tank. You know, and I kind of, I, I use the gas tank analogy because I think um, it's a good one. If we fill the tank, you know, when we have time and things are good and we have margin, then, we have a little extra when we need it, when things get tough. And I think with the pace of change today and and these types of things, what happens is that when people are marginalized and they're not um, able to uh, focus all their energy, you know, like I said before, focus all their energy on, on what the organization's uh, cause is, or the, you know, it's the, it's the find your why, right? It's the why when they're not able to really focus on what you're trying to do, they're focused on something else. And if they're focused on something else, then their discretionary energy is going into that. It's not going into sort of building the bank so that it's there when you need it. 
And so we can't afford to have people focused on something else and distracted. There's a professor at Harvard, um, Bob Keegan, who wrote a, a really great book a couple of years ago called An Everyone Culture. And one of the things that he says is that in addition to everyone's sort of full-time job in corporate America, and, and they did a, t you know, these, these guys are researchers, they did a ton of research, and they looked at, you know, how people spend time. And what they said was that in addition to everyone's full-time job, people are doing the equivalent of a second full-time job. And that second full-time job is the, the energy they're putting into managing image at work. Yeah. So it's yeah. covering for their inability to be authentic because they're worried about mitigating the risk and not appearing, um, you know, some way that they feel like they shouldn't. And that just takes away from our ability to be resilient. And I, I think that's another great, you know, and that's costing companies billions of dollars a year. And I, right. that, to me, I mean, those billions of dollars a year, I'd sure like to have those back um, in the form of the opportunity to be resilient and really stay more competitive. Correct. Correct. And and, and like you said, it, it's it's a differentiator, you know, as, as those that are able to figure those things out earlier on and provide a much more equal basis for all, um, you can kind of see how that kind of evolves in in the morale of the company, you know, because sometimes, I mean, even as a consultant for me, we walk into various projects and I'm sure for you as well, um, you know, I have my indicators on, on various things. I'm sure you have your indicators of various things, but sometimes I can walk into something that is a very large project and I, and I start looking around after we take on the contract and I go, okay, why are there no charts and graphs or any type of, you know, display of project control schedules or this or that posted on the walls? I mean, why are people sitting in their office with the doors closed? Why does this feel like a morgue, you know, like I'm walking into a funeral versus walking into a project that is actually just getting started? I mean, it's like, really, people? I mean, like, what what, what planet did you grow up on? I mean, you, you can't be successful this way. It's just it's just insanity. You know, it really is. So there's one story that I read in the book, and it, it was one of these things that I figured I, I, I wanted to kind of just hold off, you know, and I wanted, I wanted to ask you about, right? So it talks about, you know, when you were, or maybe Cynthia, was a, a competitive water skier. So who was it? Was it, was it you? Or... Okay. <laughs> All right. me. All right. <laughs> So, so I, I thought that was a, a, a rather interesting, uh, interesting story, and, and I and I thought it might be prudent if you if you could share that with us. Wow, sure. Um, so I'm just curious. <laughs> I didn't mean I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no. I, you know the, the the most fun I think I've had with you is is listening to the the random things that you pick up on, which is which is just great. So tell me, um, so tell me a bit. So there's a lot I could share about that story. Is there a specific uh, element that stood out to you? Well, I I think it was along the lines of where, as I read this, it basically started out with. When you were young and arrogant and didn't think you needed any help from anyone because because let's face it i mean when we're young we're we're, we're we all feel this invincibility about us and, and 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 ultimately you know you talk about how things went off the rails so kind of give us a little a little insight in on that 
Oh, God. oh okay, yeah, sure. So, um, <laughs> okay, that really was a curveball. No, so, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think um, I, I was, I mean, without a doubt, young and arrogant. So, you know, of course, we, you know, put 20, 30 years on us and we, some of that edge goes away. But I think, you know, I started my career working in New York City. Um, it was dog eat dog, type A, aggressive. Um, you didn't succeed if you, if you weren't arrogant. And, um, you know, and, and I did pretty well in that world. But I, I will say that I didn't like myself for what I had to do to be successful in that world, which was why I eventually left. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, and certainly, you know, going into water skiing was really interesting. So I, uh, I didn't, I didn't learn as a, as a child. So I, I, I wallied around the boat, you know, with my family and whatnot, but I didn't learn how to, I didn't learn the sport and the competition. So I got into it uh, a bit later in life. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of going at it, sort of, um, burning the candle at both ends. And, you know, I had flexible work arrangements with the first three companies I worked with to be able to, you know, you can't train in the dark. So, I, you know, I had these kind of agreements in place where I could train during the day and, and ski. And so I was living this life where it was very much, uh, you know, get up at two, three in the morning, you know, maybe four, drive to the lake, train, go to work and, and then um, or go to work really early, leave early and then go train in the evening. And, um, you know, I, I think I just kind of felt like I had it all at that point. Right. Who, who wouldn't? <laughs> so, right. um, you know, great leadership roles and then, you know, the, the sport at the same time. And um what was interesting. So I, I guess when I got to Memphis, um, so I had been in the sport about 10 years, I was a state champion in three States. So I was top 50 in the country, um, you know, still working. And I, I took a leadership role at AutoZone and I, you know, still training in, in Memphis. And, um, I, I had my first car accident knocked me completely out of, um, out of competition. So the, I was rear-ended, um, you know, in a Dodge Durango and the guy hit me and, you know, I mean, just, completely messed up my back and knocked me out of, out of, out of competition. So I continued to train, you know, lightly and rehabbed and rehabbed. And a year later came back and uh, only to be taken out by another car accident about a year later. And that one was, um, an 18 wheeler hit me. Uh, He was going 70 miles an hour, never hit the brakes. I was in a Ford Thunderbird convertible. Um, and had there not been a pickup truck between us, he would have gone right over me. And so that car saved my life, um, but it was not the easiest thing to recover from. So I recovered, spent another year in recovery and, you know, really rehabbing and trying to kind of come back. I didn't think I'd ever be competitive again, but I wanted to ski. So I, I stayed uh, a judge and a driver and in the sport. And then when it was time to come back, I came back on the water and my first day out, um, I collapsed in the water and they had to literally pull me out and I couldn't, I couldn't get up. And so at that point was diagnosed with a rare blood disorder and discovered that I would never do cardio again. And so I went from this crazy sort of, um, you know, balls to the wall life to, uh, you know, you better find something else to do because this isn't it. (laughs) And, you know, talk about a humbling experience. Um, it certainly became, you know, a, a time and, and it was again, you know, very, a very much of a life shaping experience. Um, so I, I went, you know, kind of went through that, got into some other things, started my company in the midst of all that, believe it or not. And then, um, in 2010, so I went back and, you know, I was trying, I wanted to get into speaking and I was trying to figure out, 
you know, this business is all very corporate. We talk about a lot of research from Harvard. We've got, you know, a lot of best practices. I really had worked with some great people, built some great tools, but it wasn't about me. And so I, I went back and I kind of lost the passion. So I went back and I asked 10 people who know me really well, what's the story that only I can tell? And I want to figure out how to integrate that into my business. And 10 people came back and said, you are nothing if not resilient. Like, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you came back. I mean, there were probably, and I could tell probably five stories like that, um, that were equally as powerful and equally as life-changing. But that one, that one was probably the, you know, one of the, the biggest ones. But as you know, so I went back and said, okay, well, what did I do that allowed me to actually be able to come back and be resilient? Um, mm -hmm. And frankly, did it matter? Right. So if if you can't teach resilience, it didn't really matter how I became resilient. So I had to do the research to figure out, number one, can we teach resilience? And thank God the answer was yes, or I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't be in the position I'm in. Um, but the other thing was that not only can we teach it, um, we can replicate a framework and a model that people can use to actually build resilience. So that was the second thing. And the third, which is the absolute best part to me, it was kind of got me excited, was that the way we build resilient individuals, the way individuals build resilience is the exact same way we build resilient organizations. And so what that meant was that if I could figure out what it was, I could teach it once and help both individuals and organizations. And that's what we were able to do. So the framework that's in the book is um, the Leadership Resilience Framework is you know proven for in both of those spaces and what i like to think is that when organizations send us you know individuals we work with the individual first just like the book is set up and then we build a corporate resilience framework and when those two things happen together the power in that is just absolutely incredible um in an example, we worked with a, a payments company uh, about a year ago, and you know I usually do some follow-up afterwards, and so I let about a month go by. I was a little bit late, let about a month go by, and we had put 15 of their um, high-potential talent through our two-and-a-half-day resilience workshop. And so I called about a month later, and you know they lots of kudos right after the fact. I mean, lots of compliments and whatnot, but you never really know where, you know, if they had a great experience, they're going to give you compliments, but you never really know what sticks. So about a month later, I called the CEO and I said, you know, Sean, tell me a little bit about what's changed for your organization since we did the program. And he said to me, Jennifer, our entire company has more courage because 12 people finished that program. And wow. the influence they were able to have because they had built a res not just a resilience framework for themselves, but they had built sort of, they had started down this path of building a framework for the organization where they identified the areas where they needed help and they started to make progress on them. It was absolutely profound. And so, you know, going, going from a cocky kid that, you know, invincible and thought I could do anything to, I really can't do anything to, you know, to being able to have this kind of impact, I think it, it has been such a humbling experience that I can honestly say, I mean, I'm really glad we get to pick new filters because I'm truly not the person I was 25 years ago. Sure, sure, sure. And that, that's an amazing, absolutely amazing story. And, and certainly uh, you've had an amazing journey, which, uh, which, like I said, you know, we can all kind of relate to bits and pieces of 
of your transformation and how you've evolved and, and, and just the overall aspect of thinking differently. Like you said, removing those filters. I mean, that it's, it's really open up, um, you know, the doors for you to be able to be as successful as you are uh, today. And, and that's commendable. And so, Jennifer, you know, we'd like to kind of uh, wrap up a little bit. I mean, we've talked about so much great stuff, man. I think I got more notes now than what I had when we when we first talked. I mean, so I'll I'll let you uh, I'll let you kind of chime in on some closing remarks, and then basically I'll uh, I'll add a few closing remarks. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. It's been such. I mean, it's just been such an honor, and it's so much fun uh, to talk to you. I think you get to the um, sort of the raw, authentic. Um, part of what's important in a way that I, you just don't see very often, and so I've had a lot of I've had a lot of fun kind of doing some deep dives in places that um, I maybe wouldn't have expected to on a podcast from someone that literally uh, you know came in and read the book and found this stuff. So I really appreciate the ability to do that, um, and I also appreciate your recognizing that resilience right now. it's not just about profitability. It's about how do we solve our social issues? It's about how do we stand people up and prop people up and help people stand up in ways they may never have before. So I think that to me is really the power in creating resilience, which we probably underestimated in the book. And so the fact that you called and said, hey, I think you're missing a chapter um, was absolutely brilliant. And so I really appreciate um, the opportunity to maybe straighten that out and uh, we'll go we'll go write that. So thank you. <laughs> do I get any credit for that? <laughs> you certainly do. <laughs> it wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, for those for those that know me and, you know, I'm hoping like 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 we told our listeners earlier on, you know, for those that know me, I, I'm a very giving person and it's all about me helping. You know, one of the, one of the mottos in my own company, Sketcher, is about uplifting capability. So I look at that uplifting capability motto as being something that I try to apply everywhere, you know, with my kids, with my friends, my family, my professional colleagues. It's always about uplifting, you know, capability because it's not about trying to know everything or do everything. It's about providing enough understanding and appreciation so that we collaborate collectively together to achieve the best possible outcome that one can possibly perceive you know, to reach your overall common goal. And so from what I've gathered from from this and the notes that I've kind of taken here that are between like about eight different sticky notes is the fact that, you know, chapter 10 is really important, you know, in, in, in the book. And, and I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I don't have anything but, but, but positive things to say about chapter 10. You know, the thing for me is, as you talked about in chapter 10, Our fate drives resiliency and the choices we make by forming the basis of our abilities to basically take on risks, you know, choose the right attitude, let go of our filters, understand our purpose, and be clear on what success looks like is extremely, extremely important. And from our dialogue today that we've talked about, two more points I would like to make that Jennifer brought up. Being uncomfortable when things don't appear to fit inside your shoebox, your perception, 
your bias, your beliefs can be a good thing. Let's not take that for granted. That can be a good thing in life. And then I think the last point is really we should all, especially now, in in this current situation that we're in, whether you call it a crisis or pandemic or global disruption, however you want to look at it, whatever adjective you want to play in your mind, is we should all take a good look at ourselves. And so with that being said, you know, those are my final remarks. And Jennifer, hey, I going to give you a virtual hug you 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 i hope you're feeling the virtual hug right now absolutely yes that's mutual for sure because i mean this this is awesome and uh certainly uh i i hope that we just aspire to build our professional relationship for for many many years to come and and obviously as i've told you in the past you know i'm 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 always there you know to to help you out if you if you see of any value and i and and look forward to to the reciprocal aspect of that from from our from our standpoint as well and uh with that you know i'd like to tell our listening audience goodbye this has been episode 21 rewriting a new chapter jennifer thank you very much bye bye and everyone be safe out there god bless take care greg proctor cut to the chase bye bye